You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. At the Advent, we have a heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ and a heart for those who haven't heard it yet. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, that you would uh, speak clearly uh, through this class, that uh, it would not just be uh, dry history, uh, but would be uh, a testimony to your Holy Spirit in the life uh, of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, one of the things that that the Advent does really well is, um, is to talk about the English Reformation and so we're very good about talking about Henry VIII and then Edward VI and then Mary Tudor. But then uh, we kind of leave it at the high point of the burnings of the martyrs uh, and then just kind of leave it there. But actually there were some things that happened that had a profound effect on what we now know as Anglicanism uh, after that, especially under Elizabeth uh, and moving up uh, to uh, and through uh, the Commonwealth until um, the glorious revolution of 1690 and being uh, July the 16th, uh, what, what did we just have recently, Robin Anderson? The Glorious 12th. Yeah, the, the Glorious 12th. So that's actually, we're going to close out next, cl- not the next class, but the next time I address you in two weeks' time, uh, we're going to close out basically, bless you, with the Battle of the Boyne uh, because that really did uh, enshrine Protestantism in uh, Great Britain in a way that it hadn't up to that point because it was still touch and go. And so this is one of those classes where you can stop me and argue or I need a point of clarification or uh, if you have a question, uh, that's perfectly fine. So let's, let's breeze through, shall we? Okay, so Mary Tudor dies. Uh, she, uh, she died. Uh, she was childless. And so the plan of succession went to her half-sister Elizabeth, who was the daughter of Anne Boleyn. And Elizabeth was 25 years old when she came to the throne, and she was her father's daughter uh, through and through. Uh, Except one of the things that Elizabeth did is that she was like her dad in that she was very political and wanted to maintain the balance of things in uh, her dominions. And so one of the things that happened when she became queen was that the execution stopped. So Henry was ready to execute people. Edward really didn't. Uh, Mary was ready to execute people. And Elizabeth brought them all to a screeching halt. Now, she still executed people, but it was for political reasons, not religious reasons. And so uh, killing people for religious reasons was pretty much over uh, in England uh, and for the most part uh, ended uh, until uh, this day, I hope. Uh, And so, uh, but... Elizabeth had some funny things going on when she came to the throne. Uh, one is that keeping in mind the political landscape of, uh, of Great Britain, uh, well, not even, it wasn't Great Britain at that time, it was England. Uh, Scotland was still a separate kingdom. And keeping power uh, was a very difficult thing. And here was a 25-year-old woman who came to the throne, and she wasn't married, which means what? She didn't have kids. She didn't have uh, any, there was no succession plan. And we're going to talk about her in a little bit. So the most legitimate claimant to the throne of England was Mary, Queen of Scots, who was, um, uh, 
was at that point the, uh, the Queen uh, of Scotland, and we're going to get into her uh, a little bit uh, later on. And so in November of 1558, Elizabeth became queen, and uh, this was a uh, significant, uh, significant moment in the life of the church. And quite frankly, until very recently, uh, the, uh, the UK used to celebrate the succession of Elizabeth to the throne on November the 17th, because that was the moment that marked that they were never going back to Roman Catholicism. Now, at the moment, they didn't know that. Uh, and in fact, a lot of it in hindsight, what happened in 1559 uh, when Elizabeth began to sort of uh, de-Romanize uh, England, uh, a lot of people thought that things were going to be in flux, but in fact, a lot of things were cemented in that year of 1559 because Elizabeth inherited a Roman Catholic church in England. Uh, you remember Cardinal Pole and all of those guys, and um, you've seen the Tudors, and then... Um, uh, no, you shouldn't if you're a real Christian. So, uh, the, um, uh, but so she had to, but at the same time, because her power is so precarious, it was a real balancing act uh, for her because on the one hand, she didn't want to upset, and I'm just going to use this language, the Catholics, uh, those uh, who were not necessarily loyal to Rome, but they were just as happy to be a part of Rome. Doctrinally, they were Roman Catholic, uh, but some of these uh, were bishops who went along uh, with Henry VIII during the break of Rome, so long as they could keep their Roman Catholic doctrinal positions, they could really care less. But then they've gone back underneath the authority of the Pope under Mary, and Elizabeth is going to have none of that. Yet at the same time, she doesn't want to alienate them doctrinally because uh, what would eventually happen is that when um, in 1570, uh, the Pope would eventually excommunicate Elizabeth. Uh, because at that point, she'd already been told uh, by law, because she was the daughter of Henry and Anne Boleyn, and that Catherine of Aragon was still alive, that meant that her birth was illegitimate. And so she was not a rightful claimant to the throne. Now, here's the tricky thing, is if Elizabeth had gone and decided to become a Roman Catholic, she would have to embrace her illegitimacy, which means that she would have to give up the throne anyway. And so she was in a real sticky spot and was definitely a, a thoroughgoing Protestant and so uh, decided uh, to move the church in the direction that her father and her brother, Edward, uh, were, um, uh, uh, were, were headed, uh, but to try to keep the peace amongst uh, the Catholics in England. And let me just say this at the time, in 1559, the 1552 prayer book was brought back with very few exceptions. Uh, they did away with some of the things that were very offensive uh, to Roman Catholics, like the black rubric. Uh, the black rubric was because it was printed in black ink, uh, and you can look it up. Uh, it's back in the prayer book now, actually, in the 1662, and it articulates why it's okay to kneel when receiving communion. John Knox hated it. He fought against it, and so they put that in there to pacify John Knox, who we'll also get to in a little bit. But she also did some things because the 1552 prayer book at the administration of communion said, uh, Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed upon him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. And the 1549 said, uh, The body of our Lord Jesus Christ which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. And so Elizabeth went and just scrunched them together and put them side by side to cause some doctrinal uh, ambiguity. But what ended up happening was that when Elizabeth came to the throne, 
all of the Protestants who had been exiled, whether self-imposed or otherwise, they began to come back to England. Now, while they were in exile, they weren't like in the south of France and Marseille or kicking it on Corfu. Uh, they were in places like Frankfurt and Geneva. And so she was very glad for them to come back with their Protestantism, but she was not very happy for them to come back with what she considered radical political ideas. And this is where the Puritans began to come uh, onto uh, the scene. Because just north of England uh, is Scotland, where you have this very strange situation. Uh, Mary Tudor, uh, when she was born, uh, Scotland really disliked England. Uh, you've seen Braveheart. And, uh, and that, has been, uh, that was a long-running thing. And so uh, they had been used to having infant monarchs. So they would go through these long successions, and I mean decades, where they really didn't have a functional monarch. And so they were ruled by the Scottish nobles, who at this point were by and large thoroughgoing Protestants. And so uh, Mary was a, a little baby, and uh, they wanted to figure out how can we bury the hatchet, not in one another's heads, with England. And so they tried to work out actually betrothing Mary, to, uh, Queen of Scots, uh, who's also a tutor, uh, to um, Edward VI. Uh, but that fell apart, and so they went and did what they probably shouldn't have done, and they betrothed her to Francis II, the King of England. Uh, and so she spent, Mary Queen of Scots grew up in France. Uh, but when Francis died, uh, bless you, she went back uh, to Scotland uh, where she encountered something that she had never seen before, and that was the Scottish Kirk. Now why this is important is because it had a profound impact on the English church leading up to and after Elizabeth's ascendancy. These parties, Catholic, Puritan, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, and I mean that in a governmental sense, not in a theological sense, a Presbyterian form of government, a plurality of elders like a session, and, and, and then we have bish an Episcopal form of government like we do, they were all part of the Church of England. They were all part of the Church of England. No one went around saying, you're not a part of the Church of England. Now, some of them did get unchurched, but for doctrinal reasons. But John Knox, for instance, was offered a bishopric in the Church of England. And most people simply identify him with Presbyterianism. But he was, a, a, he was the rector of a church in Newcastle uh, in England. Uh, he had gotten in some trouble uh, in Scotland uh, because after uh, he, had, he was there, and uh, there was a guy named uh, uh, Wishart, who was preaching, and uh, Cardinal Baton in St. Andrews jailed him and then executed him. And in true Scottish faction, John Knox and some other guys broke into the palace at St. Andrews and killed the cardinal. And then they held out there for a number of years until the royal forces finally overtook him. And then uh, John Knox became a galley slave aboard a French ship. I mean, this is, you know, Ben-Hur kind of stuff. And, uh, and then uh, there was some sort of prisoner exchange, we think, and then he came and served in the Church uh, of England. And he was offered a bishopric, but he refused it uh, because he would not wear Episcopal vestments. Now, I don't mean cope and mitre. Uh, those are actually brand new uh, to Anglicanism. Uh, Cranmer was the last Archbishop of Canterbury to wear a mitre because he put it away at the time of the Reformation until Cosmo Lang in the 1920s. Uh, you might remember Cosmo Lang. He was the guy that got caught up in the abdication crisis. Um, if you've ever seen any of that, um, that was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. And so 
it wasn't, the, it wasn't those vestments that he didn't want to wear. It was the Rochet and Shamir, um, which tastefully, it does look a little funny if you've ever seen the Ruffly sleeves and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's not very flattering. And, uh, but that's not why he wore it. He just felt that it was inappropriate and that they ought not to be wearing that kind of thing. And actually, he ended up getting into a huge public fight with, um, with Hugh Latimer, the great preacher of the English Reformation. So here are two guys who agree on almost everything theologically. I mean, at this point in the church and even into Elizabeth's uh, reign, the church was thoroughgoing what we would even call Calvinist. Uh, it was super reformed, uh, and the disagreements in Elizabeth's church had more to do with things like vestments and church governance. Well, of course, Knox would eventually uh, go uh, up into Scotland where uh, he really would be able to reform the church in the way that in a Geneva uh, fashion where John Calvin and those guys were. And, uh, and that made for a very strange situation. But Mary, Queen of Scots, was like her cousin Elizabeth in understanding that uh, you've got to keep the peace. You've got to keep the peace. Now, ironically, what ends up happening is Mary, Queen of Scots, marries a guy named Lord Darnley. And Darnley uh, was a bad man. Uh, he, was, he was really something. And, um, uh, but on the one hand, where Elizabeth's situation was precarious because she was not married and didn't have an heir, do you know what made Mary's situation precarious? She produced an heir. I mean, it's a, it was a double-edged sword for women. Now, Elizabeth didn't like John Knox, and Mary, uh, Queen of Scots, didn't like John Knox because John Knox didn't like women. Uh, he just, he really didn't. In fact, he wrote a treatise saying why women should not be monarchs. Um, and uh, and, and uh, his excuse was, uh, I was talking about someone else uh, when he was questioned about it. Uh, a, a good husband. I was talking about someone else. I was talking about you. So... And, um, and so uh, Mary, uh, with Lord Darnley, um, ended up having a child, although there's some suspicion that, um, that the child was actually fathered by one of her advisors named Rizzio. And Darnley and a couple other guys, uh, I think Darnley was a part of it, uh, broke into uh, Holyroyd Palace, into Mary's private quarters, and stabbed him in front of her. Uh, right, You can go to the spot on the floor and see that. Uh, I mean, Scotland. I mean, you know, freedom! Uh, yeah, right. Uh, and, and so uh, they, they murdered him, and, uh, and she ended up uh, marrying another na- man by the name of Bothwell. Uh, but the heir had been produced. He would be James VI of uh, Scotland, uh, and he would then be the heir uh, to Elizabeth's throne when she would die. Uh, but the difference was, is unlike his mother, uh, James VI or James I uh, was grown, grew up a thorough-going uh, 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 Protestant. Now, um, things started to go pear-shaped in 1570 uh, when Elizabeth is excommunicated, and along with that, the Pope says that Roman Catholics have a responsibility and obligation to assassinate Elizabeth. Needless to say, it didn't go over well uh, with, uh, with Elizabeth, and she spent much uh, of, of her time worried about that uh, because she didn't need that. And of course, that incident in 1570 would eventually lead, lead to the Spanish Armada. That's why Spain ended up coming at, at England. And so at that point, when she was excommunicated and the Pope says, I want her dead, uh, you would think that, uh, and the Puritans said it, they said, well, gosh, 
Uh, there's no reason for us to hold back anymore. We've alienated all, I mean, we've now been alienated from, from the Romeward side, so let's really go for it. But again, that was not uh, Elizabeth's disposition. And uh, echoing uh, Frank Limehouse, I mean, her MO really was, I've decided not to decide. Uh, that was one of Frank's famous lines uh, with the clergy. And by not deciding, it turned out that she decided a lot, and things remained in stasis. Although there was no doubt that the Church of England uh, was thoroughly um, Protestant. And there were some things that Elizabeth didn't like about the Protestantism of the Church of England. So, for instance, she wanted a crucifix in her private chapel. And do you know how many crucifixes there were in the Church of England chapels and churches when she reigned? One. The exception was only granted uh, to, uh, to Elizabeth. That, and she did not uh, like uh, clergy getting married, and so a canon was passed that said that if you were going to get married, you had to ask your, if you were a clergyman, you had to ask your bishop's permission. But of course, that went unenforceable. And in fact, today, when Deborah Layton uh, was getting married to Scott, uh, Bishop Sloan actually mentioned something about needing to meet with Scott before uh, they, got, uh, they got married. Uh, which is not a canon anymore, but he must have watched the Tudors and, uh, and, and saw that and thought that's a pretty uh, uh, good idea. Not questioning the meeting thing, but, but that was one way in which Elizabeth uh, could uh, at least say, I tried to enforce clerical, clerical uh, celibacy. But at this point, most of the Romeward bishops uh, either died out or they left. And so what was left where a whole lot of Protestant bishops spread across. Now, let me say this, is that we spend a lot of time talking about the radical and reactionary fringes, the, the radical Puritans and then the, the more radical Catholic element. But they were actually very small bookends amongst a big swath uh, in the middle. I don't think that you... Uh, I think you could say that uh, the church at the time of Elizabeth... Uh, was uh, a, a Protestant uh, church, and there was a lot more grassroots than people thought because the accusation of the English Reformation is that it was a top-down. And I think that's true to an extent, but I would say that it was top-down, but it was um, implemented uh, from the bottom up. And you can see that manifest itself in the life of the people of England of that day, uh, as well as uh, you can go back and look at people's wills and see what they left their money to and the language that they used, that it turned out that the common folks uh, were much more reformational in their character than what a lot of people uh, had uh, decided. Now, uh, after the excommunication and the assassination attempts, also uh, there were um, uh, attempt, they, a lot of uh, Catholic families that remained in Scotland and England were sending their children uh, their sons and other men over to France to be trained by the Jesuits to come back and to be secret undercover Roman Catholic priests. Uh, and so if you've ever been to a, an old home in England, sometimes you'll find a priest hole. Does anyone know what a priest hole is? It's a little secret passageway where you would hide the Roman Catholic priest uh, if the authorities uh, showed up. And hopefully, hopefully you, uh, you remembered that he was there. So, but Elizabeth was into total loyalty and anything that, that, whether you were radical Protestant or radical Catholic, she was having none of it. And so they passed some legislation, which I think was a bad idea, but she did it anyway. And it made, for the first time in the history of England, church attendance mandatory. 
You had to go to church, which meant what? Was it about religious devotion? It was to smoke out the extremes. Because if you're a radical Puritan, you're not going to really want to go to church. And if you're a radical Roman Catholic, you're not going to want to go uh, to your local parish church either. And so, uh, needless to say, it really didn't uh, work uh, very well uh, at all. Uh, Along the way, uh, Elizabeth uh, conquered uh, Ireland, uh, and most of Ireland was very difficult uh, to, to conquer. Actually, there's a fun little way to do this. For those of you who are Irish, you, you know this. Uh, you can find the fault lines in Irish society by people's last names. And so the people who were centered around Dublin were fairly heavily anglicized in England. The crown had control over that. It was out in the countryside that they had a really hard time. And so uh, if you have a name that is O-something, like O-Henry, uh, or whatever it might be, uh, or you might have a name like Mick or Max something. Um, the Dublin area, uh, the, the Mick and the Max and the O's were the people who fought against Elizabeth, but if you had a name like Fitz, uh, Fitzgibbons, Fitzsimmons, Fitz whatever, uh, then you were, um, then you were uh, on, uh, on Mary's, I mean, listen to me, Elizabeth's side. Uh, but one of the things that she decided to do, it took her about 30 years, not till 1601, to conquer all of Ireland, But what she ended up doing, in order to sort of secure it up, uh, she had a lot of um, uh, Protestants uh, from Scotland uh, to move into the north, uh, which ultimately um, sowed seeds of discord that that we see now with uh, the Irish uh, troubles uh, today. Uh, But to say that they're Johnny-come-latelys, they've only been there for 400 years, uh, so it's a little late to to be complaining now. So, um, that's... Uh, leading us up uh, to uh, the point of, let's talk theology. Okay. So at this point, um, Mary is, I mean, Elizabeth is a thoroughgoing Protestant. Mary, Queen of Scots, is still alive. She makes a terrible mistake and decides to form an army to go against some dissident um, uh, Scottish Protestant uh, lords. And um, actually, uh, she'd been in a couple little battles before that amounted to nothing, uh, but then uh, she was in a battle that was like a real Braveheart battle. I mean, it was full on. And she was so frightened by it uh, that she and her entourage, uh, they lost, uh, but she took off. And she made the mistake of going to Elizabeth for safekeeping. Uh, and Elizabeth took advantage of it. She imprisoned Mary uh, for the rest of her life. Uh, and, uh, and it wasn't until the end where Mary was, and this is not uh, conjecture, she was definitely involved. Uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, was, uh, was involved in an assassination attempt against Elizabeth. And so uh, Elizabeth was very reluctant uh, to execute uh, Mary because she'd seen that go both ways, uh, not the least of which her mother. Uh, being executed. She didn't see it, but, um, or at least that she remembered. Uh, but um, uh, but uh, Mary was uh, eventually uh, executed, which began to sync up England and Scotland because then the writing was on the wall. If there was a point at which when Mary was at, Elizabeth was 45 years old where they thought maybe she can marry this guy and he was a Frenchman, but it was just too volatile, and at 45 years old, you're probably not going to produce 
uh, an heir, and Elizabeth was only going to get married because she wanted to get married, not because anybody told her that. And so she ended up dying, uh, a single woman, and then her, um, her nephew uh, uh, or cousin, James VI of Scotland, became James I of England. Here's where the theology comes in. James I may have been the smartest person to ever sit on a European throne. I mean, he grew up in the school of hard knocks, pun intended. I mean, he had theology driven into him as the young, I mean, throughout the entirety of his life so that the theological works that James I published were on par with the big hitting academics of the day. Like he was, he knew what he was talking about. And he ended up, uh, in fact, he is responsible for a lot of things. Um, even though he grew up a thoroughgoing reformed Christian, uh, uh, there were some things that he didn't like about John Knox uh, and the Presbyterians, and he uh, uh, let the power go to his head a little bit. So some of the things that he realized when he got down to England is that if he had the power to appoint bishops, he had a lot of power. And so he wasn't about to go to a Presbyterian form of government. Uh, he developed the King James Bible, uh, which, of course, we're all very grateful for. Uh, not the first English Bible, but why he did that is because the other English translation, the Geneva Bible, had notes in the margins, which, quite frankly, sometimes distorted the text in a very anti-Roman Catholic way that either the text wasn't saying that at all. Like in Revelation, it would say, you know, it would have a little, a little asterisk about the Antichrist, and in the margin it would say, this is the Pope. Uh, and then you just keep... Um, so, um, so James said, eh, I don't like... And then he, I mean, to, to his point, it was a Protestant decision because he said, I think that people ought to read the Bible for themselves and trust the Holy Spirit of God to lead them into all truth. Uh, because that's just the opposite side of what we criticize the Roman Catholic Church for doing uh, in, in, in the Middle Ages, of telling us what to think rather than reading it for ourselves. So you have the King James Bible. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, he sent representatives to the Synod of Dort. Uh, anybody know what the Synod of Dort is? I'm surprised. I figured you'd, you got like a T-shirt or something when you went to the Netherlands to see it. Well, a huge controversy broke out amongst uh, the Reformed Reformational churches uh, in uh, Europe. Mainly everybody but the Lutherans, because the Lutherans at that point had moved beyond the issue I'm about to talk about. Uh, but in England, it was a hotbed issue, and in, uh, especially in um, the more Calvinist areas, it was a hotbed issue, and it had become a big issue in the Netherlands. And that was uh, the difference. It was, the issue was predestination. Uh, the issue was... Uh, do we decide uh, to become Christians? Do we have free will or is our will bound? Now, Luther said, I mean, he wrote a book called Bondage of the Will. I mean, what do you expect? Uh, but actually, uh, Melanchthon, his successor, pulled back on that a little bit. But the Lutherans had their own thing going. They didn't want to get involved in the conversation. They had bigger fish to fry. And, uh, but the other, the other said, look, we've got to sort this out. And so representatives from all the churches uh, came together, and there are representatives at the Synod of Dort uh, from the Church of England, and that was the church meeting that created what we now know as the five points of Calvinism. So when you hear about five-point Calvinists, Calvin didn't say that. The Synod of Dort uh, said that. So what ended up happening is that, uh, and, and uh, the Church of England uh, 
the, the joke about the Church of England was that it has Calvinist articles, the articles of religion, uh, but Arminian clergy. Uh, and so that, I know it's a bad joke, uh, but, that's, but when you're in England, that's what you joke about. Uh, and so uh, you still had this, this very, um, this, this kinship uh, with the continental reformers uh, that lasted through uh, the duration of Elizabeth's reign, certainly into uh, James' uh, reign. And then uh, finally, uh, James's heir, uh, Charles I, uh, his son, uh, uh, made some missteps, uh, and the church was partly responsible for that. Now, funny enough, when... Um, Again, when I want to emphasize this. When all the controversies over vestments and all that kind of stuff uh, came to the fore, uh, theologically, everybody ha- was in pretty much agreement. They just disagreed over stuff like that. But then all of a sudden, uh, this guy named Bancroft, who would eventually become the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, came forward and he put forward an idea that the church had never heard before, at least the Church of England, which was the divine right of bishops. And that is, is that bishops, as the Church of England knew them, was a God-ordained model of government. And to not have bishops would put you in sin and actually mean that you're not a church. And so one of the war, uh, was no bishops, no church, was one of the war cries. Well, even members of the Church of England were looking around saying, we don't, believe that. Um, the, 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 article, the Bible doesn't teach that. The articles don't teach that. In fact, uh, J.B. Lightfoot, who was the Bishop of Durham uh, in the 19th century, did a, uh, a commentary on Philippians, and in it, he, he goes out of his way to, to go after Bancroft, who lived 200 years before he did, uh, to say uh, that the New Testament understanding of presbyter, which is translated as elder, or we translate as priest, and episkopos, which we translate as bishop, are actually in the New Testament one and the same. They're one and the same. It was a development not that long after, not that long after uh, the, um, uh, the apostolic era that, that bishops began to develop into sort of centers of, of authority in the way that they have now. And so then you had a split in the church between those who were saying, no, bishops have a divine right. They're divinely appointed, and, those, and they're essential to the life of the church. And then you had the vast majority saying, no, bishops aren't essential, but they are beneficial uh, to the life uh, of the church. Uh, we do bishops because there is a biblical argument that can be made for them, uh, but basically because that's uh, what works here. Now, the monarchs were all very happy to go along with that because it helped them consolidate power. Uh, because remember, this is an established church at the time. There's no dissension allowed. That's why you've got to hide your priest and, and why ultimately what would happen if you got too far out of the way, you were sent to Holland. And uh, just to tell you how rascally they were, there was a group in the, late, uh, in the, um, in the seven, early 17th century that uh, was so rascally that they were sent from England to Holland and Holland couldn't even bear them, so they were sent to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And, um, and so, uh, so you have, it, basically, if you were in dissent, you, you had to go. You had to get out. There's a lot more freedom in the Netherlands, but uh, for most of them, they just continued on uh, to places like uh, the United States. But when Charles I came to the throne, Charles really liked this whole idea of divine right, 
not just the divine right of bishops, but the divine right of, of a king. And he really threw it around uh, to the point that Charles I did something that no one else had ever done. He was upset with some uh, members of the House of Commons, uh, and he himself, with a couple guards, stormed the House of Commons uh, and demanded the arrest of certain individuals. And it is the first time that a reigning monarch of England had ever set foot uh, in the House of Commons. And so that doesn't seem like that big a deal today, nor does some of the other stuff that I'm talking about. But in the moment, it meant a lot. Uh, it meant a lot. And that ev eventually led to a uh, collision course and uh, Charles would lose his head and, uh, and then the rise of, of the Puritans taking control uh, of the Commonwealth, which we'll get to in two weeks' time. But let me just leave it with this before we get into comments and questions and concerns. That even though it seemed like things were in flux under Elizabeth and even under James, uh, things were actually cementing for Anglicanism. Uh, they really were uh, beginning to coalesce into an idea of what we have as Anglicanism now. Uh, history after the Commonwealth, or I should say, history... It, got, it started to get, it was, it was pretty well established, and then there was something that happened in the 19th century that muddied the waters again. Uh, but uh, what happened during Elizabeth and James's reigns is generally accepted as if this is, if you want to get a good idea of what Anglicanism is, uh, this is what it is. And so undeniably uh, Protestant, not, you know, people come away saying, well, the Ang Anglicanism is the via media that somehow were between Geneva and Rome. And that's not true, as if we're something wholly other, like an Orthodox church or a Roman Catholic church. That's not true. There's no doubt uh, that we're a Protestant church that was birthed uh, out of the Reformation, uh, but where we didn't reform ourselves was in the way that we do church governance. Uh, that's that's the, the main thing. So uh, we retained uh, a Roman Catholic uh, style uh, of government uh, with obvious uh, changes, uh, but as uh, somebody once, I think it was Gerald Bray, that said if you want to get an idea of the theology of, um, you, might, you might say that our church governance is between Geneva and Rome, but if you want to see our theology, it would be closer and more right to say that it's between Geneva and Wittenberg. And I think that that's, and that's true. We can talk about how that manifests itself, but I'll leave it there. Shannon. Did the Armada help uh, Elizabeth cement the English church? Yeah, it didn't hurt. Um, you know, it's one of those situations where, where you say, hey, you can't say that to our queen. Only we can say that to our queen. Uh, so there was a lot of that. Yeah, and I think that it was, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, inflate it. But the fact that they defeated the Sp Spanish Armada is miraculous. I mean, it really is, is miraculous. And so uh, she, and, and living, you know, in that day and age, that, that's what people thought. People thought that it's clear that, that God's hand is on her and, and she is, is, is our woman. And it also helped to have James waiting in the wings who was a Scottish Reformed guy and so there was a lot of comfort because up to that point, I mean, you think about it, you had Henry VIII's family in the War of the Roses, 
and all of that. And then there was a crisis when Henry died because you've got all these kids from different people. Well, mainly you've got Mary, uh, you've got Elizabeth, and then you have Edward. Uh, Edward's a boy, so that makes it a little bit easier. But even then, there's some anxiety about it. And then when Edward dies, remember they tried to get Lady Jane Grey, who was queen for nine days, a wonderful godly woman, but a political disaster, that, that move. And then Mary comes to the throne. Uh, and then after Mary, everybody's kind of anxious as to what happened. And so you had so much flux uh, for over 100 years that at that point when the Spanish Armada shows up, there's so many things that had coalesced and had begun to cement that people, for the first time ever, began to, to feel pretty good about it. Uh, but their identity would be tested, and we're going to talk about that next week, um, because it would only be... Um, you know, a, a little over 100 years later uh, where they'd fight another war uh, and they would invite a Dutch prince uh, to come and be their king uh, rather than the one who was rightfully entitled to the throne. And there are good reasons for that. Okay. Um, I've, I've got a question. Supposing Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, let's suppose that Francis stayed healthy. They were teenage bride and groom. Okay, let's let's say that Francis II in France. Right, we'd all be speaking French. Uh, well, I wondered how do you see? Would Mary Stuart still have been kind of interested in meddling and and how how could that? There wouldn't have been James on the throne. How do you see history playing out if she had stayed in France and presumably just the French bishops got to run the show? Yeah, well, what would have happened is you would have had a united kingdom between France and Scotland, and that would have been really, really bad uh, for... Um, uh, and, and the French got involved, too, in the Glorious Revolution, and so there was this constant jockeying back and forth. But it would have really put... Um, it would have put England between a rock and a hard place. And so that's why England is constantly, even though they're a traditional enemy, reaching out to the French uh, to try to... But another thing that happened in 1560 is that you had the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And so on that day, uh, French Catholics slaughtered, I, I mean, astronomical numbers of Protestants uh, on that day. Um, and so, uh, that, so then all of a sudden you had a refugee issue. Um, and incidentally, uh, during um, uh, this time, uh, there were ministers that were ordained in continental reformational churches who were not ordained by bishops serving in the Church of England. They, they just recognized their orders. There wasn't the sense, now we've got to reordain them. And so, and that had an impact, and allowing them too to worship in their own language was a significant thing, because that's what the prayer book was all about. Yes, worshiping in your own language, but uh, they made the Cornish worship in English, and so, but they gave a get-out-of-jail-free card to the Germans. I'm going to go big picture on this. Okay. I won't lie. A few times while you're talking, I'm like, good. I mean, you know, kneeling versus standing yeah. when taking the bread. I'm like, right. why, why do we care? You yeah. know? <laughs> and, but I think this is a good reminder that, um, I mean, people died for our liturgy. People right. yeah. died for these decisions. And, and I take it for granted, yeah. you know, the words we say, the specific words that are in our, yeah. in our worship. And this is just a good reminder that, you know, that 
Yeah, this is not so much. Some of the things, um, some of the things I do think you can, like you can look at John Knox and say, pump the brakes. Like you're, you're, you're overacting on, on this one. Uh, but there are other things that, quite frankly, until the mid-20th century and even later, we're the first generations to not care about certain things. And I don't think it's because we think, oh, what's the big deal? Uh, but because those things mattered so desperately. And a lot of it was because of what they were coming out of. And the Church of England trying to define itself, uh, for instance, and I notice this today in Anglicanism, is that Anglicanism is, seems to primarily be defined by what we're not. So we'll say things like, well, that's Baptist, or that's Presbyterian, or that's whatever. Well, then what is it? What, what exactly is Anglicanism? And I think that those who came before us had a much more robust uh, ability to answer that question and to be able to appeal to things. The other thing that's happened for us is that in America, uh, I'm just going to say it, the 1979 prayer book, although some things happened in the 28th that began to change things, but that really separated us from any sense of common prayer in, in the Anglican communion. And so it basically became Anglicanism as interpreted by everybody. And some of the seeds of that were sown in Elizabeth's day because when you leave things vague, they're vague. And, and, so, and I think in some ways I'm glad that they were left vague, but there were some things that would have been very helpful for them to cinch up and say, yeah, this is, this is where we're going to go and where we're not. So for instance, until the early 1960s, it was illegal to wear a chasuble, you know, the colored thing that looks like your grandmother's drapes. Uh, it was a, you could, you could, and people did go to jail for that in England. And we think, wow, but during the day and time, people said, oh yeah, you're going to jail, boy. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it was a big, it was a big deal. And there's still some diocese in the Anglican communion where when you're ordained, you take an oath and promise not to wear Eucharistic vestments. So for some people, that's... But what I would say what's largely lost, though, is the theological impetus and the theological thrust. So I do think that at the time of Elizabeth, they even admitted, like, that the Episcopalians, the guys who believed in bishops, and I would count myself among those, they tried to appeal and say, look, we're Christians and we agree on the big, big issues. What we don't agree on are these issues, which are secondary, but the propensity of some of the Puritans were to take secondary and tertiary issues and make them primary issues. And that's, that's, I mean, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? So I think in our day and age, um, Anglicanism has had that aversion, but I think it would be good to sort out and, and look and say, while we're doing, we're going to do a series on the 39 articles over the next year to be able to say, these are actually, these are what define Anglicanism. You don't have to agree with them, but these are these, along with the prayer book and the homilies, which is a book of sermons, uh, and the ordinal, our ordination service, give us our boundary as to what it means to be Anglicanism and the rest of it. Sin boldly, yeah. So, right. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. At the Advent, we have a heart for those who've been burned by the church and a heart for the city of Birmingham. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.